Book 7, Chapter 10 of Les Miserables Translated by Isabel F. Hapgood This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Messerschmidt Les Miserables by Victor Hugo Book 7. The Champmachu Affair. Chapter 10. The System of Denials. The moment for closing the debate had arrived. The president had the accused stand up and address to him the customary question, Have you anything to add to your defense? The man did not appear to understand as he stood there twisting in his hands a terrible cap which he had. The president repeated the question. This time the man heard it. He seemed to understand. He made a motion like a man who is just waking up, cast his eyes about him, stared at the audience, the gendarmes, his counsel, the jury, the court, laid his monstrous fist on the rim of woodwork in front of his bench, took another look, and all at once, fixing his glance upon the district attorney, he began to speak. It was like an eruption. It seemed, from the manner in which the words escaped from his mouth, incoherent, impetuous, pell-mell, tumbling over each other, as though they were all pressing forward to issue forth at once. He said, this is what I have to say, that I have been a wheelwright in Paris, and that it was with Monsieur Ballou. It is a hard trade. In the wheelwright's trade, one works always in the open air, in courtyards, under sheds when the masters are good, never in closed workshops, because space is required, you see. In winter, one gets so cold that one beats one's arms together to warm oneself. But the masters don't like it. They say it wastes time. Handling iron when there is ice between the paving stones is hard work. That wears a man out quickly. One is old when he is still quite young in that trade. At forty, a man is done for. I was forty-three. I was in a bad state. And then workmen are so mean. When a man is no longer young, they call him nothing but an old bird, old beast. I was not earning more than 30 sous a day. They paid me as little as possible. The masters took advantage of my age. And then I had my daughter, who was a laundress at the river. She earned a little also. It sufficed for us, too. She had trouble, also. All day long, up to her waist in a tub, in rain, in snow, when the wind cuts your face, when it freezes, it is all the same. You must still wash. There are people who have not much linen and wait until late. If you do not wash, you lose your custom. The planks are badly joined, and water drips on you from everywhere. You have your petticoats all damp above and below. That penetrates. She has also worked at the laundry of the Enfants Rouges, 
where the water comes through the faucets. You are not in the tub there. You wash at the faucet in front of you and rinse in a basin behind you. As it is enclosed, you are not so cold, but there is that hot steam, which is terrible and which ruins your eyes. She came home at seven o'clock in the evening and went to bed at once. She was so tired. Her husband beat her. She is dead. We have not been very happy. She was a good girl who did not go to the ball and who was very peaceable. I remember one Shrove Tuesday when she went to bed at eight o'clock. There, I am telling you the truth. You have only to ask. Ah, yes, how stupid I am. Paris is a gulf. Who knows Father Chamachu there? But Monsieur Balou does, I tell you. Go see it, Monsieur Balou's. And after all, I don't know what is wanted of me. The man ceased speaking and remained standing. He had said these things in a loud, rapid, hoarse voice, with a sort of irritated and savage ingenuousness. Once he paused to salute someone in the crowd. The sort of affirmations which he seemed to fling out before him at random came like hiccups, and to each he added the gesture of a woodcutter who is splitting wood. When he had finished, the audience burst into a laugh. He stared at the public, and perceiving that they were laughing and not understanding why, he began to laugh himself. It was inauspicious. The president, an attentive and benevolent man, raised his voice. He reminded the gentlemen of the jury that the Jure Balou, formerly a master wheelwright, with whom the accused stated that he had served, had been summoned in vain. He had become bankrupt and was not to be found. Then turning to the accused, he enjoined him to listen to what he was about to say and added, you are in a position where reflection is necessary. The gravest presumptions rest upon you and may induce vital results. Prisoner, in your own interests, I summon you for the last time to explain yourself clearly on two points. In the first place, did you or did you not climb the wall of the Peron orchard, break the branch, and steal the apples? That is to say, commit the crime of breaking in and theft. In the second place, are you the discharged convict, Jean Valjean? Yes or no? The prisoner shook his head with a capable air, like a man who has thoroughly understood and who knows what answer he is going to make. He opened his mouth, turned towards the president, and said, In the first place, then he stared at his cap, stared at the ceiling, and held his peace. Prisoner, said the district attorney in a severe voice, pay attention. You are not answering anything that has been asked of you. Your embarrassment condemns you. It is evident that your name is not Champmachu, that you are the convict Jean Valjean, concealed first under the name of Jean Machu, which was the name of his mother, that you went to Auvergne, that you were born at Faverolles, where you were a pruner of trees. It is evident that you have been guilty of entering and of the theft of ripe apples 
from the Peron Orchard. The gentlemen of the jury will form their own opinion. The prisoner had finally resumed his seat. He arose abruptly when the district attorney had finished, and exclaimed, You are very wicked, that you are. That is what I wanted to say. I could not find words for it at first. I have stolen nothing. I am a man who does not have something to eat every day. I was coming from Ayi. I was walking through the country after a shower, which had made the whole country yellow. Even the ponds were overflowed. And nothing sprang from the sand any more but the little blades of grass at the wayside. I found a broken branch with apples on the ground. I picked up the branch without knowing that it would get me into trouble. I have been in prison, and they have been dragging me about for the last three months. More than that I cannot say. People talk against me. They tell me, answer, the gendarme who is a good fellow, nudges my elbow and says to me in a low voice, come, answer. I don't know how to explain. I have no education. I am a poor man. That is where they wrong me, because they do not see this. I have not stolen. I picked up from the ground things that were lying there. You say, Jean Valjean, Jean Machu. I don't know those persons. They are villagers. I worked for Major Balou, Boulevard de la Hôpital. My name is Jean Machu. You are very clever to tell me where I was born. I don't know myself. It's not everybody who has a house in which to come into the world. That would be too convenient. I think that my father and mother were people who strolled along the highways. I know nothing different. When I was a child, they called me young fellow. Now they call me old fellow. Those are my baptismal names. Take that as you like. I have been in Auvergne. I have been at Faverolles, Pardi. Well, can't a man have been in Auvergne, or at Faverolles, without having been in the galleys? I tell you that I have not stolen, and that I am Father Champmachu. I have been with Major Balou. I have had a settled residence. You worry me with your nonsense there. Why is everybody pursuing me so furiously? The district attorney had remained standing. He addressed the president. Monsieur le Président, in view of the confused but exceedingly clever denials of the prisoner, who would like to pass himself off as an idiot, but who will not succeed in so doing, we shall attend to that. We demand that it shall please you, and that it shall please the court to summon once more into this place the convicts Brevet, Cochepail, and Chenildu, and police inspector Javert, and question them for the last time as to the identity of the prisoner with the convict Jean Valjean. I will remind the district attorney, said the president, that police inspector Javert, recalled by his duties to the capital of a neighboring arrondissement, left the courtroom and the town as soon as he had made his deposition. We have accorded him permission, with the consent of the district attorney and of the counsel for the prisoner. This is true, Mr. President, responded the district attorney. In the absence of Sheriff Javert, I think it my duty to remind the gentlemen of the jury of what he said here a few hours ago. Javert is an estimable man, who does honor by his rigorous and strict probity 
to inferior but important functions. These are the terms of his deposition. I do not even stand in need of circumstantial proofs and moral presumptions to give the lie to the prisoner's denial. I recognize him perfectly. The name of this man is not Champmathieu. He is an ex-convict named Jean Valjean and is very vicious and much to be feared. It is only with extreme regret that he was released at the expiration of his term. He underwent 19 years of penal servitude for theft. He made five or six attempts to escape. Besides the theft from Little Gervais and from the Piron Orchard, I suspect him of a theft committed in the house of his grace, the late Bishop of Dean. I often saw him at the time when I was adjutant of the galley guard at the prison of Toulon. I repeat that I recognize him perfectly. This extremely precise statement appeared to produce a vivid impression on the public and on the jury. The district attorney concluded by insisting that in default of Javert, the three witnesses Brevet, Chanodou, and Cochepaille should be heard once more and solemnly interrogated. The president transmitted the order to an usher, and a moment later, the door of the witnesses' room opened. The usher, accompanied by a gendarme ready to lend him armed assistance, introduced the convict Brevet. The audience was in suspense, and all breasts heaved as though they had contained but one soul. The ex-convict Brevet wore the black and gray waistcoat of the central prisons. Brevet was a person sixty years of age, who had a sort of businessman's face and the air of a rascal. The two sometimes go together. In prison, whither fresh misdeeds had led him, he had become something in the nature of a turnkey. He was a man of whom his superiors said, he tries to make himself of use. The chaplains bore good testimony as to his religious habits. It must not be forgotten that this passed under the Restoration. Brevet, said the president, you have undergone an ignominious sentence, and you cannot take an oath. Brevet dropped his eyes. Nevertheless, continued the president, even in the man whom the law has degraded, there may remain, when the divine mercy permits it, a sentiment of honor and of equity. It is to this sentiment that I appeal at this decisive hour. If it still exists in you, and I hope it does, reflect before replying to me. Consider on the one hand this man, whom a word from you may ruin. On the other hand, justice, which a word from you may enlighten. The instance is solemn. There is still time to retract if you think you have been mistaken. Rise, prisoner. Brevet, take a good look at the accused. Recall your souvenirs, and tell us on your soul and conscience if you persist in recognizing this man as your former companion in the galleys, Jean Valjean. Brevet looked at the prisoner, then turned towards the court. Yes, Mr. President, I was the first to recognize him, and I stick to it. That man is Jean Valjean, who entered at Toulon in 1796, 
and left in 1815. I left a year later. He has the air of a brute now, but it must be because age has brutalized him. He was sly at the galleys. I recognize him positively. Take your seat, said the president. Prisoner, remain standing. Chenildu was brought in, a prisoner for life, as was indicated by his red cassock and his green cap. He was serving out his sentence at the galleys of Toulon, whence he had been brought for this case. He was a small man of about fifty, brisk, wrinkled, frail, yellow, brazen-faced, feverish, who had a sort of sickly feebleness about all his limbs and his whole person, and an immense force in his glance. His companions in the galleys had nicknamed him I Deny God, Genidou, Genildou. The president addressed him in nearly the same words which he had used to Brevet. At the moment when he reminded him of his infamy, which deprived him of the right to take an oath, Chenildieu raised his head and looked the crowd in the face. The president invited him to reflection and asked him, as he had asked Brevet, if he persisted in recognizing of the prisoner. Chenildieu burst out laughing. Pardieu, as if I didn't recognize him. We were attached to the same chain for five years. So you're a sulking old fellow? Go take your seat, said the president. The usher brought in Cochepaille. He was another convict for life, who had come from the galleys, and was dressed in red, like Chenildieu, was a peasant from Lourdes, and a half-bear of the Pyrenees. He had guarded the flocks among the mountains, and from a shepherd he had slipped into a brigand. Cochepaille was no less savage and seemed even more stupid than the prisoner. He was one of those wretched men whom nature has sketched out for wild beasts and on whom society puts the finishing touches as convicts in the galleys. The president tried to touch him with some grave and pathetic words and asked him, as he had asked the other two, if he persisted without hesitation or trouble in recognizing the man who was standing before him. He is Jean Valjean, said Cochepaille. He was even called Jean the Screw, because he was so strong. Each of these accusations from these three men, evidently sincere and in good faith, had raised in the audience a murmur of bad augury for the prisoner a murmur which increased and lasted longer each time that a fresh declaration was added to the proceeding. The prisoner had listened to them, with that astounded face which was, according to the accusation, his principal means of defense. At the first, the gendarmes, his neighbors, had heard him mutter between his teeth, Ah, well, he's a nice one. After the second, he said, a little louder, with an air that was almost that of satisfaction, good. And at the third, he cried, famous. The president addressed him. Have you heard, prisoner, 
What have you to say? He replied, I say famous. An uproar broke out among the audience and was communicated to the jury. It was evident that the man was lost. Ushers, said the president, enforce silence. I am going to sum up the arguments. At that moment there was a movement just beside the president. A voice was heard crying, Brevet, Chanel Du, Cochepaille, look here. All who had heard that voice were chilled. So lamentable and terrible was it. All eyes were turned to the point whence it had proceeded. A man, placed among the privileged spectators, who was seated behind the court, had just risen, had pushed open the half-door which separated the tribunal from the audience, and was standing in the middle of the hall. The president, the district attorney, Monsieur Mabamatabois, twenty persons, recognized him, and exclaimed in concert, Monsieur Madeleine, End of chapter. Recorded by Matt Messerschmidt.